the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The views and opinions expressed in the program are not necessarily those of this radio station or its sponsors and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. You should always consult the appropriate advisor before making any financial decision. All rights reserved. Now, new focus on wealth with certified financial planner Chad Burton. Drawing from his 28-year background in finance and investing to help you make sense of your money matters. New focus on wealth. Get a new focus on personal finance, wealth management, Wall Street, and the economy. Now your host for New Focus on Wealth, Chad Burton. Retirement is coming for all of us. Unlike death, it's a less tangible concept. What does it look like? What are you going to do? How are you going to live? Where are you going to live? Got a big seminar coming up Thursday, May 25th, Elks Lodge, Palo Alto, to talk about retirement income and tax planning strategies. The tax planning part of the event shows you how you can save thousands and thousands and potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars in your retirement. We're going to talk social security strategies. CFP Chad Burton, EP Wealth, will obviously be running this show. Talking about protecting your estate, if that's important to you, long-term care costs, and much, much more. $500,000 in investable assets is who it's appropriate for, probably 50-plus years old. Um, I'd love to see some 25-year-olds planning for retirement, but they're not the ideal fit more often than not for this kind of content. Chad, big event Thursday evening, May 25th. Um, it should be good. Let's talk about retirement, tax strategies in retirement. I just said Tax planning and tax strategies could save you thousands and thousands of dollars. I don't think I was being hyperbolic. Um, why are taxes in retirement so confusing? And so it seems like it should be easier. It should, but it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, just even how taxes on social security are counted are, are created and, and the rules around that is crazy. There's this thing that you don't know about when you're younger until you take Social Security called provisional income, where you take half your Social Security plus all of your other income, including tax-free bond income. And if it's over a certain amount, either uh, you know 50 to 85 percent of your Social Security is taxable. So what I always tell people in the Bay Area is, when they decide to take Social Security, just if if you can afford to retire and live in the Bay Area, likely 85 percent of your Social Security is going to be taxable income. If you're trying to kind of estimate what your taxes are, um, and and then you got, I mean, what happened in 2017 with the tax law change, which made it more confusing, but it actually created a lot of opportunities for retirees. Um, there's two different tax brackets are up. There's the okay. long-term capital gains tax bracket, and there's the ordinary income tax bracket, and now they're totally disconnected. Um, you can have a lot of income. So for example, a married couple filing jointly, if the only income they had was long-term capital gains, um, you could have over 80 grand if that's the only income you had and still be at a 0% federal bracket. And then after that, it gets pushed up to a 15 or 20% bracket. 
And then you get the ordinary income bracket. And that goes from 10% to 10, 12% to 22% to 24 to 32 all the way up to 37%. And <clears throat> the tricky thing here is that your ordinary income can push your capital gains income into a higher bracket. So you have to make sure that you know how they work together and how you can either blend or alternate your income in retirement to take advantage of the lower brackets, either you know zero to fifteen percent in capital gains or ten to twelve percent on the ordinary income. So, are you confused yet? Um, just the zero percent capital gains tax has me confused. Um, and again, you're splitting taxes into long-term capital gains and taxes into ordinary income, and it looks like there's seven sets of numbers. If I'm kind of visualizing what you're saying, it's it's pretty intimidating. Yeah, it, it can be, and. It, part of what we do at the event is kind of show a kind of a heat map to show that, okay, if you, this is where you are now. And if you do different things, where, where, do, how does one bracket affect the other? And I think first of all is knowing what long-term capital gains is. So okay. if you have a stock that you've owned for over 12 months, and it has a gain on it and you sell it, that's going to be a long-term capital gain. If you have real estate that you've owned for over a year and you sell it, same thing, long-term capital gain uh, or business, for example. So it, dividends from US companies are also in that capital gains bracket. So if you have, you know, dividends from Apple, Cisco, Microsoft, those dividends that you receive on a quarterly basis are going to count towards that long-term capital gains bracket. Okay. Okay. So, you know, that that has its own tax system, but then what you take in terms of ordinary income will push those numbers that I just talked about up into the, you know, potentially into the 15 then 20% capital gains bracket. And so ordinary income, interest on your bank account, right? Yep. Ordinary income can also be, if you draw money out of your IRA or 401k, that's never been taxed. That's ordinary income. A pension that you might receive is ordinary income. And then, like I mentioned, most of your social security is also going to be considered ordinary income. So that ordinary income has its own tax bracket and whatever you have in taxable ordinary income that can push your capital gains taxes higher. And so they, they work together, um, but the brackets don't match. (laughs) So it's, it can be a little confusing. You type me up a note and let me share it with the audience where you say, you know, talk about selling the stock that you've owned for over a year, if no other income, then you wrote MFJ. What am I missing on MFJ? <laughs> Married filing jointly. So let's say okay. that you you, know, you go fun. into retirement, you haven't started taking Social Security yet, you don't have a pension, you don't have any rental income. Um, you know, all you have is your 401k that's never been taxed and a bunch of appreciated stock, like for the company that you work for that's in a non-retirement account. So if you you've owned that stock for well over a year and you don't have any other income. You could sell enough of that stock to create over an $80,000 gain. And that depends on if you're itemized or take a standard deduction and pay a 0% capital gains bracket. And so you, you could do that, but then as soon as you take an IRA distribution, you could cause those gains to those, the gain from selling that stock to go into the 15 or 20% bracket. So it's like, here's one bracket, but what you do over here in the ordinary income bracket can affect what happens. And so it, it is confusing. You do need tax software to model, you know, where am I going to get the rest of my income that I need each year? Yep. Um, it's just as, if not more important than asset allocation is to determine 
what type of income you're going to generate in retirement. The average listener right now, Chad, is like, I'm just trying to accumulate enough in my 401k. And you're telling me that I'm going to have to juggle taxes and scenarios and modeling. Um, I, I think that's intimidating. And I, I think it's it's good that we have people like you and software like you have in large part because I do want to pay a 0% tax if I legally can do it. I don't want to pay a 20% if I don't have to do it. And then getting in all the income tax brackets, it's pretty intimidating as well. Um, so how do you start this process? Um, someone's 55, 60 years old heading towards retirement. Do you start looking at their paycheck? Uh, do you take a look at their 401k? Do, do, does it look like they're leaning into a lot of dividends? It's, I don't even know where you start on a clean sheet of paper. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, I mean, you have to kind of take a, a basic idea of what a person's expenses are. And then we add in things that you're not thinking about retirement, like your Medicare Part B premiums and, you know, what are you going to do for fun and purpose and what's going to get you out of bed? So we, we make sure we have all of your expenses. And the first thing that we do is we model the existing scenario okay. and based on your expenses you know, the taxes that we estimate, how long is your money going to last, right? And, and get a basic idea of that. And then we model what's going to hit your tax return no matter what. And what that means, Rob, is that, you know, again, what's your your interest on your bank account, you know, your rental income, any pension, any social security. And then what people have to understand is phantom income. And so when you have non-retirement accounts that hold mutual funds and ETFs, that's a, you know, a way to invest in one funder or one exchange traded fund and have exposure to all these different stocks and bonds, they're going to distribute capital gains, ordinary income, and potentially tax-free bond income. So what is going to hit the tax return no matter what we do? And then we run scenarios to see the rest of the income that you're going to need. Where do we get it from? Selling stocks or pulling from an IRA or 401k. Say hello to a pass that gives you endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. You might call it the suitcases always packed pass. Or the wait, I get to choose from 100,000 trips pass, the will it be the beach, city, mountains, or all three pass. Or you could just call it what we call it, the Inspirado Pass. Endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. Learn more at inspiradopass.com. We're talking about retirement income and tax planning strategies. There's a big event Thursday evening, May 25th, 630 to 830 at the Palo Alto Elks Lodge. Uh, we're kind of getting into the swing again of doing seminars. It, it's got a good rhythm to it. These are always great events. It's nice to put faces to the names of the emails that I get. It's for people with 500,000 or more investable assets. Chad Burton is going to break down income planning and tax strategies. He's going to show you a sequence of returns. He's going to show you all his magic tricks. Not magic tricks, but tricks, hints, tips, and strategies. It's a pretty cool event. Uh, taxes in retirement, discerning good and bad retirement products, 401ks in retirement, what to draw from first. It's pretty overwhelming as, as far as um, great content. So sign up today. Go to chadburton.com. It's chadburton.com. When we last left off, we were talking about taxes, Chad. What's going to hit your tax return no matter what? Uh, you were going through some of them like bank interest and rental income and pension, social security. But then you start getting into uh, some phantom issues. And I'm not talking phantom like Scooby-Doo. Tell me what a phantom issue might be. Yeah, you bet. Well, usually they come from when you're investing in non-retirement accounts. So outside your 401k, IRA, or Roth. So you open up a brokerage account, a Fidelity or Schwab, you know, on your own or joint with your spouse or under your living trust account. And you buy mutual funds or ETFs. And mutual funds can be a basket of stocks, 
or a basket of bonds. ETFs can be a basket of stocks or a basket of bonds, right? It depends on what, what you're investing in. And so when you put money into a mutual fund, for example, and look, mutual funds and ETFs are very similar. The difference is an ETF just trades all day long. It, it You can buy and sell throughout the day. A mutual fund trades once at the end of the day. That's it. So very similar. And so inside of a fund or an ETF, the manager is choosing what to buy and sell. And so if you invest in a mutual fund, even though you don't pull any money out, if they decide to sell Apple that they've owned for years and years, that can create a capital gain inside the mutual fund. And they distribute that to you at the end of the year in December. And so what happens is your share price drops, they make a distribution, and that distribution buys more shares. You didn't take any money out, but then all of a sudden you get a 1099. You're like, oh my gosh, I just I have to pay a bunch of taxes on this, and I didn't even pull any money out. And that is, that's phantom income. And they also do that with the dividends. Um, so if you look at stocks like Cisco, Microsoft, Apple, um, a lot of stocks pay dividends. And that dividend also gets distributed out um, in mutual funds, either, you know, typically once a year, or in some cases, monthly or quarterly. And so when you're still working, you're adding money to these non-retirement accounts and you're getting these 1099s each year. Um, you have to realize that even when you stop working, that income is going to be there, that phantom income, that income that is created, even though you didn't pull any money out, you have to be able to estimate what that is and how it's going to hit your tax return in retirement. And, uh, and some, sometimes one of the first steps if people need money from their portfolios, Rob, is inside of those accounts, you typically see your dividends and interest reinvested to buy more shares. Well, when you retire and you need income from your portfolio, you should stop that and you should start taking those dividends and interest, having it sent directly to your checking account uh, because you're paying taxes on it anyway and you need the income. And it's the first part of tax planning to see what income, like your mutual fund and ETF, phantom income, you know, capital gains distributions and dividend distributions, social security, pension, rental income, which can be very tax efficient. Um, and, you know, finally, we're talking about interest from bank accounts now that we can earn 4% plus on our safe money and our cash, right? Sure. Um, what do you mean by rental income can be really efficient? Oh, well, well you've got you've got your income that you receive from uh, who you're renting to. And then you've got your expenses, like your property taxes, you know, say HOA, some maintenance, insurance, um, property manager. So you've got all those expenses. And then also the building that's on the property, you can depreciate over 27 and a half years and, and use that number. So you divide the value of the building by 27 and a half. And each year you can essentially take that off and it reduces the tax on your rental income. Um, so rental income can be very tax efficient. Although I will tell you, uh, especially in the Bay area where, you know, if you look at the actual net income from rental properties and then people dealing with rent rules and things like that, we've got a lot of clients looking to 1031 exchange and get out of Bay area rental properties lately. It's been kind of like a, a, a lot of people, um, are trying to say, okay, this, the income is no longer worth the headache and let's get into something more passive with higher income. Okay. Ultimately, if I were to bottom line what we're talking about for the audience right now and kind of put it back into a focus, it's how to make your money last longest. 
and you have software that can run scenario A, scenario B, scenario C. I love that. Um, when I know that making it last longest, it kind of gives some happiness to me. It's, it's, it's that's the goal, right? Well, yeah. I mean, the asset allocation honestly is the easiest part. We got to okay. figure out the we we have to figure out the asset location, which which asset classes are best for your taxable accounts versus your retirement accounts versus your Roth IRAs, for example. Um, and when you know every year when you and I are filing our tax return, we're trying to say how do I pay the least amount of taxes this year. But once you retire, you have a limited resource, right? You have the all of the savings that you've created. And so you have to think about taxes over a 30 plus year period and realize that starting at age 73, you have to start pulling money out of your 401ks and IRAs and 403bs. And, and you have to be able to model that and say, what's my tax bracket from the date I retire to age 73 and then beyond. And you need to blend your taxes over that period of time to pay the least amount of taxes possible. And then in some cases, when we run plans for wealthier people that have a lot of money left over, we go from, uh, you know, the personal tax return to also looking at the kids tax returns, who's at higher rate kids or parents, depending on, you know, what date we're estimating somebody passing and dealing with that issue as well. How do we make sure that more money stays in the family or to charity versus going to the government? What do you do? And we have about a minute and a half. What do you do when you see that I'm going to be okay? I can live to a hundred, still have money left over in the pot. And, you know, I guess we can get into a little estate planning for the kids conversation, but also long-term care. What do we need to know? Or what do you need to know? What do you take action on? One of the main seven tests that I do is modeling a long-term care stay. You or your spouse goes in a nursing home for five to seven years. You know, what happens? You still really have enough money to left over. Um, and if you do, you look at things like annual IRA to Roth conversions, where you take a little money out each year from your IRA, pay taxes on it by converting it to a Roth IRA account. Um, and, and by filling in those top brackets that we talked about earlier in the show, and um, that way you start to create a tax-free pot of money for yourself. And then Roth IRAs can go to kids and they'll get tax-free growth for another 10 years after that. I've been doing broadcasting with the CFP Chad Burton for roughly 25 years. It's pretty insane when you think of it that way. Um, but we've seen it go from an industry of investment advisory to adding services and more services and more services. And it's, I think, a pretty neat thing to have the accreditation of a CFP because you can start doing real estate analysis, college education planning, Medicare planning, retirement planning, estate plan review, business planning, stock options, things that are much bigger than just investment advice or investment advisory, debt analysis, insurance analysis, and much, much more. So I'm lucky enough to have CFP Chad Burton on. You're lucky enough to be able to come to an event Thursday night for two hours, get to pick his brain, get to pick his team's brain bring questions, you can sign up at chadburton.com. While you're there, you can go through some of his content and his content's worth getting. It's free. You can get it at chadburton.com. Chad, let's talk. Um, this is one that is always popular because it feels like we're cheating the system. It feels like the IRS shouldn't allow us to do it, but we do. How do you actually do an IRA to Roth conversion? And what are the issues to consider when you do the IRA to Roth? Because it, it really turns your taxes upside down. And that's kind of a good thing. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's like sometimes certain firms will just get on this as a super hot topic. Like, oh, it's always good. It's the best thing to do. Convert money to an IRA, from an IRA to a Roth. But you still have to, before you do anything, very careful long-term cash flow projections and say, okay, do I have plenty of money left over even after I model a long-term care stay? Because 
What's interesting, if you, if you end up in a nursing home or a lot of heavy medical expenses in the future, sometimes we have to pull extra money out of an IRA to get income up so that you can actually deduct those medical expenses against something. And so it's not it's not a no-brainer. You really have to do some careful planning to say, is this a good idea to pay taxes early? So essentially what you're doing is, number one, we all know that there is limits to put money into a Roth as you're working and you're trying to, you know, make a contribution to a Roth IRA, but there are no li income limits or age limits. If you want to say, I want to take money from my IRA or 401k and convert it to a Roth where you pay taxes on it now and you stick it over into an account that's going to grow tax-free forever. There's no income limits at all. Um, so th the steps that you take are, you know, first of all, you would open up a Roth IRA account and at the same place that you have a regular IRA account and you every custodian has what's called a conversion form where you either say, I want to um, take a certain amount of cash in my IRA and move it over to the Roth. Many times I'll take specific shares. Let's say I want to take a share of a small cap value fund and move it from my IRA over to a Roth and just pay the taxes on it now. So at the end of the year, you get a 1099 from the IRA showing that it converted to a Roth, but it's going to be taxable income. And so, again, there's a lot of steps that you have to take before you do it because the paperwork and the process is, is fairly easy. But the things that you have to consider are much bigger. For example, if you retire early, let's say you're age 60 and you retire, you don't get on Medicare until 65. And so before then, you're either on COBRA for a little while or you're on one of the covered California plans And you're, if you live in California. And if your income looks really low on paper, even though you're asset rich, but income poor, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. you know, you're living off of your cash, you haven't started selling stock or taking money out of your IRAs or 401ks, you don't have your social security yet, you don't have a pension yet. If you look poor in terms of income, you can get a lot of Medicare pre or a, a, a premium credits for that California plan. And so you have to realize that as soon as you do an IRA to Roth conversion, you could lose those premium credits. And I've seen cases where that's, you know, 15 to 20 grand a year for a couple. All right. So that's, that's one thing to consider. The other thing to consider is, do you have cash on the sidelines to pay the taxes? Because when you move money from an IRA to a Roth and create that taxable income, you know, come April or in some cases, January of the following year, when you have to make an estimated payment, you're, you're going to have to pay the, the taxes from somewhere. So you have to have some cash on the sidelines to do that. And how does that affect it? Um, the other thing that should be dealt with first, Rob, is that you can have, you know, this idea of moving IRA to a Roth. But if a lot of people in the Bay Area have concentrated stock positions because they worked for a specific tech company or a couple of tech companies for years, so they've got a bunch of stock from the company that they worked for, that is a large amount of risk going into retirement. So I think that dealing with concentrated stock positions first is is more important to keep that risk level down and lower that overall risk level as you go into retirement. Okay. Here's a question, because I know yeah. a lot of people in the Bay Area, they want me to scream at you. Let's say you have a big concentrated position in Apple or Microsoft or Cisco, mm -hmm. and you do the covered call strategy and you start to unwind it. Where do you go next? And why not just stay in it? A lot of people want to stay in their tech stocks is what I'm saying. They have a hard oh, yeah, time separating from them. 
Well, it, it's, it's, I mean, Cisco is a perfect example, right? Because that goes through periods. If you look at kind of five-year chunks, you go in the last 15 years, there's been two five-year periods where it's drastically underperformed the S&P 500, where if they would have just sold, paid the taxes and invested in the S&P 500, they would have been way ahead. Okay. So first of all, it's just understanding that. Um, when it comes to Apple dealing with yesterday, um, the stat blew my mind, Rob, that Apple is larger than all of the companies combined in the Russell 2000. Yeah. Is that crazy? So if you look at the Russell 2000 index, which is an index of the top, you know, small and mid cap companies out there, Apple is bigger than that. So eventually you have the law of large numbers and the ability to grow revenue when you're that large. Yeah. You know, it's going to be an issue. And so they do have an, an event coming up. That's pretty interesting. June 5th is the developers conference and we'll get to see the augmented virtual reality headset. And we'll either get really excited or we'll be really upset. So a covered call strategy could be appropriate. Well, so yeah, and, and it depends on what you're trying to do. So these dealing with concentrated stock positions, you you know, model taking the hit. You know, right now capital gains taxes are very low. They're set to go up in 2027 or 2026, yeah. rather. So selling covered calls is a strategy where you're trying to create additional income on stock that you're waiting to sell. And so what that means is, so we always look at stock options as a way to protect wealth versus a way to build wealth. And there are day traders out there that trade options all the time as their, you know, you know, full-time job on their, you know, personal money. Um, but for wealth management, it's, it's a way to protect wealth, typically not a way to build wealth. So for example, when you're selling a covered call on Apple, what you're doing is right now it's 173. So you're, you're essentially either, you know, typically two, four, six months out, you're selling, the right to somebody else to buy the stock from you at a certain price. Let's say it's uh, 190. And so what happens is you get some income dumped right into your account for doing that. And if if the stock never makes it up to 190, you win. You just keep that cash. If the stock goes above 190, let's say it goes to 200, they have the ability to buy it from you for 190. They meaning the, the person that bought the call option or the the institution that bought the call option. And so what it does is it kind of draws a line in the sand. It says, yeah, I'm willing to sell or let go of the stock if it hits up a certain to a certain price. In the meantime, if it doesn't, I'll use this income either to live off of it or buffer the downside. Um, if you don't need the income and you're really just trying to put off the sale to a certain point where your tax bracket might be lower or to a following year, and you're really trying to cover, you know, you know, keep the value of your position in a certain window, you can sell those calls, use that premium to buy a protective put, which covers helps protect on the downside. Okay. So that's, that's called a caller strategy using yep. options. So you, let me, let me just throw this out real quick. Covered call mm -hmm. option strategies are very complicated and you have to have a lot of experience to do them successfully. And that's what Chad and his team have access to. I want the average person to know that because calls, they sound so fun, but yeah, they can, and, they can get, they and, can mess up a lot of people. Yeah. And, and, once even people meet our half a million dollar account minimum to do these things on a specific position, the minimum on that position, in addition to our account minimum is $250,000. So it's appropriate for individual positions that you're way overweight of $250,000 or more. Um, another option out there, Rob, that people don't talk about too much is an exchange fund. Have you ever heard of these? Uh, let's say I have. <laughs> so this is where you take a very a concentrated position. You don't really want to sell it. You don't need the money for you know seven years or more. You can 
there's a there's a lot that goes into it, but you can actually put it into an exchange fund, lock it up for seven years, and then come back out with a diversified portfolio of a lot of different stocks, and then huh. choose what to sell over time. So that's an exchange fund option. What's the what's the positive of that? Or what's uh, the benefit? The benefit is that you avoid the taxes and okay. you still end up being diversified. The the negatives are the lockup period. You know, there's fees involved. Huh. Um, and so, but there's some good ones out there. And there's That's very, very interesting. In I've not heard of that for the record. So someone has a big capital gain in Apple. Mm-hmm. They can put it in a diversified fund and over seven years, it, it, it wipes out the taxes. It doesn't wipe out the taxes. It just, oh. you, you get a portfolio of a lot of different stocks back with the same cost basis. So it doesn't wipe out the taxes. It okay. just wipes out the concentrated position and trades it off for a more diversified portfolio. That's interesting. I'm going to have to come yeah. back to that one because that's, um, I like the concept, but what? putting it into play in reality might be a little difficult. Want to talk about the seminar here? We got about a minute. Uh, yeah. I mean, we'll, in, in terms of very specific examples of a, of a couple that, um, has a certain amount of income need and they're getting, a certain amount from social security and they've got different account types, very specific examples of how do I get the rest of the income that I need for my portfolio? Do I take it from selling stock or take it from my IRA and 401k and, and what do Roth IRA, IRA to Roth conversions rather look like in real life? Hi, this is Chad Burton. If you have questions about retirement and investing, it's time to get some answers. My website, chadburton.com, has a ton of resources. There are downloads to help you determine how long your money will last in retirement, links to our webinars, and several videos discussing everything from retirement planning to tax-efficient investing, estate planning, insurance, and even saving for your kids' college. While you're there, also check out our tax planning and estate planning services and our video explaining our online wealth management tool. You can find links to the podcast at chadburton.com, and please like my Facebook page, New Focus on Wealth with Chad Burton. This invaluable resource is able to show the values and allocations of all your accounts, regardless of where they're held. Information is updated each day at the end of market close, and these new numbers are fed into the financial projections we've created for our clients with the goal of constant financial clarity. You can find links to the podcast at chadburton.com, and please like my Facebook page, New Focus on Wealth with Chad Burton. So one of the tools of the wealthy is a trust. And the wealthy can transfer depressed assets during a market slump. They can take loans to pay off estate. Uh, they can take loans to pay estate taxes. They can give charity uh, via the trust. They can do a lot of things that are they're uniquely create wealth with pun wealth. It's, it's interesting the way this happens. Let's talk, Chad, about that concentrated stock position and a CRUT, a CRUT, Charitable Remainder Trust. Yep, Charitable Remainder Unit Trust. Yeah. Unit Trust, okay. Uh, yeah, this so when I find people that have charitable intent, in other words, they want to leave some money after they pass to their favorite nonprofit organization. Um, a really great tool, especially once people are in their you know mid fifties and beyond, and they're they're trying to deal with let's say a concentrated stock position or a piece of real estate they know they want to sell, um, and kind of get out of and create new income. You can do a charitable remainder trust. And what this is, 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 and you don't have to necessarily pick the final charity now. There's ways to give uh, your heirs even flexibility on who finally, what 
nonprofit finally gets the money. Cause a lot of times you're setting this up in your sixties and you're not going to die until you're, you know, close to a hundred. And what happens is you can transfer highly concentrated stock. Let's say you have a million dollars worth of Apple at a hundred thousand dollar cost basis. So if you sell it, you're going to pay capital gains taxes of $900,000 at the state and federal level. So you're just going to get creamed in taxes. If you sell it 23.8% fed, and up to 13.3% state taxes. So you can you know lose almost half of what you sell. Right. So in a charitable remainder trust, what you do is you can pick the charity and, and, and you transfer the money in. And let's say you say, I'm going to put a million dollars worth of Apple into the charitable remainder trust, and I'm going to pull out 6% a year or 60 grand a year. So as soon as the Apple goes into the charitable remainder trust, that creates a tax deduction that you can write that you can use to write off on your income taxes. So let's say it's $200,000 depending on how much you pull out each year. Um, but you could get a $200,000 deduction. And again, that depends on your age and how much you're going to pull back out each year. As soon as the Apple stock goes into the charitable remainder trust account, which is just an account that you set up at TD Ameritrade or well, that's that that's being purchased by Schwab. So Schwab or Fidelity is who we use. Um, so it's just an account owned by your charitable remainder trust. Um, as soon as you sell it, there's no capital gains taxes due, Rob. You can go from a concentrated stock position to a balanced portfolio of stocks, bonds, real estate, commodities, all of it. You can just you can immediately sell it, no capital gains tax, and create a diversified portfolio and start taking out 6% per year as long as you and your spouse live. Now, as the money comes out, there will, that's when you do pay the taxes over time, right? Right. Um, so as the money comes out, you will pay taxes on that income over time, but it won't be you know all in one year. And then whatever's left over will go to your favorite charity when you pass. And so the only people that are cut out of this deal, right, are the government in terms of taxes because no taxes will ever be due on the remainder that goes to charity. And then your kids, you know, your kids aren't going to get that money. And if that matters to you, a lot of times what people do will set up a another trust called an irrevocable life insurance trust and use some of the income to buy enough insurance to replace that after tax value of what ends up going to charity over time. And so it's a way to deal with a highly concentrated stock position, get a tax deduction, and then create another trust to get that asset out of your estate. So for people that have a really high estate that'll face 40% plus estate taxes when they die, it gets rid of that as well. Um, so it's, it's a really, really good option for people that are, you know, want to get diversified quickly and they have a charitable intent. It's interesting because in my twenties and thirties and forties, I didn't really have charitable intent. And then my kids going to schools, um, now I'm starting to have some charitable intent to the schools that took care of my kids that loved my kids that educated my kids. How about you? How's your charitable angle changed in the 20 plus years we've known each other? Yeah, same kind of deal. Um, and one of the things that's really good to use for gifting while you're alive, um, if you have highly concentrated stock, again, let's use that Apple situation. Okay. You you know you're going to give ten grand a year pretty much forever, right? And so what you could do is create a donor advised fund, and Schwab and Fidelity have these, for example, um, where you say, okay, I know I'm going to give ten grand a year. And so I'm going to take $100,000 worth of this low-cost basis Apple stock. I'm going to put it into a donor-advised fund. 
where I can get a tax deduction for doing that, even though the money is going to sit in my own donor advised fund and not go anywhere or be gifted to anyone right now, I still get a tax deduction. And then you can sell that stock, reinvest it in a balanced portfolio and dole it out right out of the donor advised fund directly to your favorite nonprofits whenever you want. You could do it all in you know, over five years, over 10 years, you could wait 20 years to do anything and let the account grow and grow and grow until you want to make a very significant gift. But that's a way to accelerate your gifting into one tax year when you need it. So it's really good to do for people that, you know, they're in their last year of earnings and they're about to go into retirement and their taxes are significantly going to change. This is the last year they're going to have a really high income. So they set up a donor advised fund. Okay. Or often we do this in retirement where people say, okay, I'm going to accelerate 10 years worth of gifting and use that tax deduction to do a really large IRA to Roth conversion to set up my kids for success with a tax-free account. How much can you wipe out in taxes or what's the most you've ever seen wiped out in taxes by gifting? Well, there's, there's certain on the spot there. Well, sure. There's certain limits. So for example, if you're gifting appreciated stock, um, the number is is you can write off up to 35% of your adjusted gross income and carry the the rest forward. So in other words, if you have a you you make a large gift and you have uh you know hundred thousand dollar deduction, but you can only use thirty-five of it this year, you can carry the four you can carry what you didn't use up to five years and, and use it over time. So the tax planning has to come into play to make sure that you can use the deduction over that five year period. Income in retirement. Very, very important. You work from age 20 to 60, roughly. You live off what you've created from age 60 to 100. You throw in a little bit of Social Security, which I'm pretty sure you're going to be disappointed with how small it is. And uh, that's what we're here talking about. CFP Chad Burton. He is with EP Wealth. You can find him online at chadburton.com. Um, I've recorded a few hours, probably about five hours in the past month with Chad. And you can go to his podcast and they're all there. It's pretty cool stuff. You can find it at New Focus on Wealth, where you get your podcast. It's called New Focus on Wealth with CFP Chad Burton. Thursday evening, he's going to join me in Palo Alto at the Elks Lodge. It's our favorite stomping ground. It's got easy parking in Palo Alto. What's better than that? Not much. Uh, but income's crucial in retirement planning, and it's a big event talking about it. Minimizing taxes as well, investing during a period of higher inflation. If you haven't been investing for the last 50, or you've only been investing for 15 years, all you know is low inflation in very environments and what works. And I can tell you, stocks work well in low inflationary environments, but it's a different ballgame in high inflationary environments. We'll talk about 401ks and retirement sequences of returns. The content you hear today is the content we're going to be talking all about. Chad, where should we jump off this hour? Hmm, well... Let's see that. Oh it's <laughs> we've talked about so many things the hour before yes. in terms of concentrated stock positions and IRA to Roth conversions. Um, you know, you're talking about going to the podcast. A lot of the recent podcasts I've posted are just you and I because I've been really busy with a, just a, a large amount of client projects that are people either selling their businesses or selling rental properties. So we could go there because you know I, I think we we've seen the the uh, movement out of certain areas of the country, like the Bay Area in many cases. And I think a lot of people, as they get closer to retirement, they realize that, you know, I don't necessarily want to manage this rental property anymore. Or the prices have gone way up, but the rents haven't caught up. So you might own this, you know, million and a half dollar 
rental property in the Bay Area, but your net income after all of your fees and everything else is two and a half, three percent, which isn't great. Um, so you know, we can go there, I guess. I have a rental property and it's kind of funny. Um, 20 years ago, it meant a lot to me. Uh, it's in Raleigh, North Carolina. It's in between North Carolina, North NC State, and Duke. It's a pretty lo- great location for a rental. But I haven't been keeping up with the uh, rents. I'm always like, I'd rather have a better renter. And my my company that services uh, the mortgage, not services the mortgage, but puts their renters in there, they've done a pretty nice job of raising the rents and like keeping me competitive. But if it were up to me, I would have made a mistake and kept it at a lower price. It's something we should talk about, right? Rental properties and cash flowing from it. Yeah. I mean, I see that all the time where um, I was just dealing with a couple that moved out of the Bay Area there in Idaho. They still have a rental property in Walnut Creek. And honestly, the the rent is it's way too good of a deal. Okay. But they're like, we've had the same renter for 20 years. Uh, They consider a friend. And, you know, hopefully she's going to want to buy the house from us because they're ready to be done and move on because they want to buy a bigger home and have a place for their mom to come live with them. And um, so they can take care of her in her last year. So things change. Um, But I see that all the time um, where, you know, I've even been guilty of it, giving too low of a rent to, to people right now. So, uh, and every time I look at, okay, here's what I have in my rental property and if I, if I take, you know, half a million dollars and put it in the stock market and half a million dollars and put it in a rental property, if it's all paid off and every time I have to pay property taxes or maintenance or replace something, I put that same amount of money in the stock market, stock market's going to crush it every single time, every yeah. single time. The only way that rental properties keep up is because of the leverage. And that means more risk and it means more headache because of renters and everything else. So, um, you know, a lot of Bay Area clients came up to the Northwest where we, you know, so we have the the Bay Area office in Redwood Shores and then an office in Vancouver, Washington, right by Portland, Oregon. And that's been a hot area in, in especially Southern, Southwestern Washington. Um, but recently a, a client that has a, a brand new home um, had to replace a roof after five years because because of some moss issues and they're, they're kind of in a fight with the builder, but that was a $25,000 expense that they weren't, you know, thinking they're going to have. Luckily the appreciation has been phenomenal and the cash flow is pretty good, but those things pop up, right? When you own rental properties, they don't, when you own stocks. <laughs> so when you own stocks, they're positive typically about 70, 74% of the time. And you just want to buy more when they're negative. That's right. There's a great New York times article that I've had for 20 years and still in my draft portfolio that talked about if you invest in real estate in five of the major cities, LA, Chicago, New York, San Francisco, um, from 1980 to 2020, the returns, you would have quadrupled the real estate returns just by going into the SP 500 without the paying the electricity, without paying the taxes, like in, in trying to convince people in California that it's really, really difficult, Chad. Mm-hmm. Well, I, and, and two, so the, it, you know, real estate is a game of total return and and that's the income, but you also have the appreciation. So those that are really good at real estate and they accumulate a lot of properties, they're constantly doing what's called a 1031 exchange into something bigger and better. Right. You know, they buy a rental property for 300,000, rent it out for a few years. They get the appreciation because it's in a good area. They fix it up and then they flip it. And then they're, they're on to the next one. But every time you do a 1031 exchange, you have to go the same value or bigger, Right. And if you have a loan on that property, you have to make sure that you have that same type of debt on the new property. So typically, again, it's like bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And people get into a point in life that we're really focused on real estate where 
they can't go any bigger. They don't want to do more 1031 exchanges. And then they're looking at, okay, how do I start to liquidate and simplify life, you know, over time? We've got about two minutes. Where should we go with this? Well, I mean, before maybe next segment, we can get into 1031 exchange options that are out there to become more of a passive investor. But I think people need to really understand what happens when you sell a rental property. So if you buy it for, you know, let's say, you know, 250,000, you sell it for a half a million, you have to pay capital gains tax on the difference. Okay. State and federal. But at the same time, you also have to look at your depreciation that you've taken over all those years. And the depreciation is typically take the value of the structure, you divide by 27 and a half, and that's how much depreciation you get to take, which helps decrease your taxes over time. And um, you have to recapture that at a 25% federal rate. And so there's, there's, there's that tax in addition to it. Now, older people have to realize that if you own real estate and you're in California or Washington and you're married, it's community property states, when the first person passes away, the real estate gets a full step up in basis. And that is a good opportunity to finally exit that at that, that point in time. Um, so people deal with this when, you know, got mom, dad going into a nursing home or something else. Well, we got to sell the house. We got to sell the rental property. Well, you might want to consider the taxes of that step up in basis situation. So something to plan for. It's pretty easy to buy a rental property. You get the idea, you get the funding, you find the renter. How about selling it? We're going to talk about that in just a second. After I talk about the Thursday event, May 25th, 6.30 to 8.30, we do about four of these a year on the peninsula. You can sign up today, retirement income and tax planning strategies. Good, bad retirement products will be discussed. There are some bad ones, social security strategies. Uh, it's not just as easy as taking it the moment you can get it. It's typically a mistake, but you have to learn more before making that decision. Uh, protecting your state, long-term care costs. My mother spent the last three years of her life in long-term care and probably spent about three hundred twenty-five, three hundred fifty thousand dollars um, It's going to be sad to say this, but it's expensive. And sometimes you just don't want it to drag on, not just for the money, but for the lifestyle. Chad, let's talk about 1031s. I, I admit it that I have a rental property in Raleigh. I don't know what I want to do with it. I have ha had low rents in there. I've had high rents. I'm ultimately very happy with it. But the whole idea of capital gains and recapturing depreciation stresses me out. Um, what should people do if they have a rental that they want to get rid of um, as life moves on? Well, uh, what if you could end up you know, just putting that rental property into a diversified real estate investment trust that owns like, you know, tons and tons of properties that are, you know, everything from multifamily to self storage to to whatever and, and, you know, yield over 5%. I, I think that's the right direction for me, because I'm getting to the point where I don't want to put I have to put a new roof on the summer and I actually got kind of lucky. There was a hailstorm mm -hmm. last year. And the roofing company, the property management company said, hey, we'll go do a roof inspection for you. I said, sure. So they send me 50 pictures and there's uh, some damage from the hail. So it's totally, my insurance will kick in and, and cover the new roof minus $1,000 deductible. No, yeah. So, I mean, we had some coverage there. Um, but it's a pain in my butt is what I was getting at. Yeah. I mean, even with the property manager, things, uh, you know, <laughs> things come up where the property manager needs to contact you to get your approval on you know, putting on a new deck or, you know, dealing with siding issues or, you know, renter moves out. So you got to fix up the yard, those kind of things that just yep. kind of come and go when you're trying to go into retirement and travel all the time. 
Um, and you also need to make sure that if you have a lot of other assets, that those rental properties are well insured and or put into an LLC so that if something happens, then, you know, they're not going to penetrate the walls of that LLC and take, take over your other assets. Um, now, have I ever seen that happen in my career of almost 29 years? I have not. <laughs> so, um, but it is something that's that, you know, every advisor will tell you that's a wise thing to do just for protection. Um, so the first thing, okay, so what should people consider here? First of all, people really need to look at their tax return and say, okay, what was, what's my net income from this property? You know, run what's called a profit and loss statement on your rental property. Here's my income from my renters minus all of my expenses, property taxes, an annual average amount of maintenance costs, my, my property manager, my insurance you know, HOA or, you know, in worst case scenario, condo fees, you and I both have about the same opinion on that stuff. Um, but HOA dues and all the kind of things that say, okay, what's, what is my net income? I'd leave depreciation out of it for a while, but what's my net income that hits, that ends up in my bank account at the end of each year divided by the value of that real estate. And if you have a number that ends up in less than 4%, you've got a problem, right? You, you may have a problem. Um, and I'm talking about, you know, especially if the property's paid off, that's, it's not great net income. No, it's not. So you have to say, okay, you know, has the appreciation kind of capped out where I'm at and, and I can either do a 1031 exchange to another rental property in another area that has better either growth potential or income potential or both. So in a 1031 exchange, uh, the first thing you have to do is make sure you have a qualified intermediary. So you tell everybody, if you if you want to sell this property, you tell the real estate agent, everybody up front, I'm doing a 1031 exchange. Because you have to have a qualified intermediary that once the house is sold, the QI, the qualified intermediary, holds the money until you close on your next property. And if you do it right, you can do a tax-free exchange. You can sell one rental property as long as you go into another and you have a from the date of sale, you have a 45-day period to either identify up to three properties that you're interested in or a whole bunch of properties that you're interested in that that add up to no more than 200% of the value of what you've sold. Um, and you know, if, if you don't end up with the same amount of debt on the new purchase that you sold, you know, so if you have a you know $250,000 mortgage on the rental that you sold, you need to have that much debt on the new rental um, or you could potentially have some partial taxable income. So it's called boot. It's another funny name. Um, so you have uh, 45 days to identify properties, 180 days to close from the date of your sell. So there's certain rules. There's a qualified intermediary and there's ways to do it. It's very common. Um, so that's what people tend to do that, you know, build real estate portfolios over time. They start off with small rental properties. They didn't, they fix them up, sell them, go into a better rental property, eventually go into apartments and things like that. They just keep going and going. But if you get to a point in life, you're in retirement and you're trying to create more income, more passive income where you don't have to bother with it as much. There are 1031 exchange options out there. Um, you can 1031 into a building leased out to Amazon, for example, um, where it's called a Delaware series trust where you 1031 exchange into that building and you're a partial owner um, in that building. And there's a manager that's doing all the management of the building. You just kick back and, and take your passive income. Um, a lot of those though, you have to make that decision to do it again every five to seven years, because typically in those programs, the company that's buying the building 
you know, the, the building leads to Amazon, a senior living, a self-storage, a student housing, uh, whatever they're, they're, they're trying to make more than just the income. They're, they're eventually going to either fix it up and sell it or, and, and swap into something else. So you typically have to make that decision every five to seven years to what am I going to go into next? Or I just want to take the money now and pay the taxes. And then after the break, if for those that just want to eventually be done and don't want to make that decision every five to, to uh, seven years, you can 1031 exchange into a specific building. And then after a couple of years, end up into a diversified real estate investment trust. So we can talk about what's called the 721 exchange. I've worked with Chad, known Chad for roughly 25 years. And during the commercial breaks, we were laughing about how time flies. I can't believe we're almost in June. And if you are one of those people that time seems to fly on them, you got to do your financial planning before it's too late. That's what we're talking about. Palo Alto Elks Lodge, 630 to 830 Thursday night, May 25th. It's a two-hour seminar exploring retirement income, tax planning strategies to help you thrive during your golden years. Chad, we're talking about 1099s. And I think the topic came up because people have rental properties and they they don't necessarily get the above 4%, above 4% cash flow out of them. Um, they tend to hold on to them and be indecisive. And you're telling me how to be decisive. You were last off somewhere at a 1031 talking about uh, another way to go about skinning the cat, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I think you said 1099s, but these are 1031 exchanges, yeah, which allows I, you to- Did I say 1099 on air? <laughs> Well, this, hey, there's also if you have a a, a non qualified annuity or life insurance contract, you can and they're they're terrible. You can do a 1035 exchange tax free into a new one. Oh, so there's all sorts of codes out there. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, 1031 exchange. Uh, you know, very common practice. Of course, there was they were trying to under the last tax change that didn't go through. They're trying to take those away for certain high income earners, which would have been a disaster for the real estate industry. Um, so 1031, you're trying to go passive, right? You don't want to be the landlord anymore, even if you have a good property manager and you want higher income and or ways to create more liquidity. And so you could take a rental property in Walnut Creek and end up with a piece of a self-storage facility, a senior living, a student housing, an apartment building, a building leased to Amazon and, and, you know, get a diversified real estate portfolio. And a lot of times more income with no headache. Um, the headache comes of every five to seven years, those properties are typically sold again because the company that is doing them, and there's only a few good ones out there, honestly, Rob, that have been around through the Great Recession um, that are really good and solid companies. Um, you know, that's the drop. You have to do it again every five to seven years. There's a, there's a more of a final approach to those that want don't want to do that every five to seven years. You can look for an offering that is going to be that the a real estate investment trust plans to purchase it. So for example, if somebody wanted to, if a real estate investment trust wanted to buy my building in downtown Vancouver, Washington, I could exchange my building for shares of that real estate investment trust and end up getting out of my building and into a diversified real estate investment trust, um, without paying taxes through what's called a 721 exchange. And REITs are very, I mean, real estate is one of the 11 sectors, of the S&P 500, right? It's just building, you, you a real estate investment trust, it's, it's um, a, a publicly traded stock typically, and th these cases are typically private, but, um, and usually they're a concentration of something, either office or apartments or senior living, 
uh, you know, those kind of things. Um, but one of these options that are out there, you can 1031 exchange into a building that plans on being purchased by a diversified real estate investment trust. And so you hang out in that building for two years. And after two years, you end up in a diversified real estate investment trust, typically a higher income. And so then you're done. You don't have to make those decisions again every five to seven years. You end up with a very diversified REIT, real estate investment trust. And then what's really cool about this is that that allows, there's a way that you can actually sell the shares specifically tied to your cost basis and pull your cost basis out of that REIT without paying taxes and create more liquidity in your life and let the other taxable shares ride. Um, so there's, you know, lots of rules and, and restrictions and things like that, that you've got to deal with and you got to make sure you have other liquid assets and you fully understand these things, but there's some really attractive ones out there. Um, for those that are like, you know what, I'm not getting the North of 4% net income on my paid off property anymore. And I'm, I'm just kind of done being a landlord. You are really earning your keep today as a CFP. This is great content. Um, should we move off rentals and into another area? Uh, yeah, yeah, let's do it. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the uh, FDIC insurance world that is going on out there. Yeah. What's your opinion on FDIC insurance? It seems like um, it's there and it seems like it's working. Yeah, it is. I think that, um, I mean, there's all sorts of opinions I can have on what could stop, you know, runs on banks, but these smaller regional banks are still having issues holding on to deposits. And so, you know, I think it is important for people that are lucky enough to have enough cash at a bank to be over the $250,000 FDIC insurance. It's important that you, you know how to deal with it. Right. And you can, by adding beneficiaries to your account, either in the form of a TOD transfer on death. So you could take your, your account at a specific bank and that's only 250,000 of FDIC insurance. And you could add your three kids transfer on death and potentially get your FDIC insurance up to $250,000 times three um, on that account. So before you have to go running around to move money around banks, um, even better, you have a living trust and your living trust already names the beneficiary. So that's a way to also increase your FDIC insurance. And, you know, transfer on death is fine, Rob, but if you have a living trust and then you go into the bank and you take a large cash account and you make it transfer on death to your kids, it bypasses everything your will and your trust says hmm. and can screw your estate planning up. So I'm, I'm seeing this mistake now more and more because people are so concerned. Um, you know, we have, of course, have option where, you know, we have one account that people can open that opens up a bunch of different bank accounts and get FDIC insurance up to $25 million in some cases. Great for operating accounts for businesses and stuff like that. That's for existing clients, so not for everybody. Um, recently, I, I had a client go into the bank and, you know, deal with this. Like, you, you need to go in, you get your savings account registered under your living trust and talk to them about um, certain sweep account options to get your business uh, account, you know, insured for a higher level. And they went in and this regional bank was offering them a rate exception on FDIC insured money market accounts for 5% because they're trying to hold on to deposits. That's pretty sweet. So it's pretty easy to get 4%, you know, north of 4% with Capital One, 360 Ally, Marcus, you know, even Apple has that deal with Goldman Sachs on the savings account on the phone. Um, how, as a purist, as a truest, how comfortable are you with online banking or banking on your phone 
or well, as long as people keep their security up to date and they use a some sort of a password creation, you know, password keeper program with dual authentication, I'm fine. But you know, people that have a five year old computer and write their passwords down, and you could look at their pa- their Facebook page and know the name of their pet and their firstborn. Um, and hack their accounts. I, I think you got to be careful. It's a world of cybersecurity. Um, so you, you do have to be very, very careful. The problem I have, Rob, with most of these online FDIC insured bank accounts is it's very difficult, if not not even allowed, to have your large savings account owned by your living trust, which is extremely important in states like California and Oregon, where probate costs are very expensive. And so people might move money out of a bank account that's registered to their trust to an online savings account that's not, and then pass away and cause their estate to go through probate. So um, complicated. You know, again, for existing clients, we have options that make it real easy and higher rates, you know, well north of 4% right now. But, um, you know, it, it is a real, it is a real issue. I think that we all know you can't turn on CNBC or Bloomberg or whatever radio or TV that is financial and not hear about the trillions of dollars of commercial property debt that needs to be refinanced. And that's a scary thing to think about when you're living in San Francisco or Portland, Oregon, where those cities are poorly ran and lots of empty office space. Um, Like Portland, Oregon is a disaster. The politics there have literally ruined the city. Um, And so you're kind of jaded, right? When it comes to (laughs) that commercial property. So it makes it holding uh, cash and banks that might be over levered in that area, a little bit scary, but media is causing the issue. There's, there's banks that are, you know, having these deposit issues that are, their portfolios are fine, but people are just nervous and they don't know how FDIC insurance works. And um, one of the things that the feds could have done right away is to say, if you are a business, your accounts are fully insured by the FDIC. And that would that that could stop a lot of the caused issue of people, you know, moving money to the too big to fail banks. Interesting stuff. I hope um, I didn't scare you too much on that one, but it's, no, it's there, supposed to be more educational than scary. <laughs> there was a statistic that I found kind of shocking that New York City's got 19 Empire State buildings essentially empty in office space. Mm-hmm. And we are we are talking more about it. And I think it's something that, that worries people. But at the same time, there's a lot going on in this economy, more than just commercial real estate. And like you said last time you're on, there'll, there'll be opportunities. Well, so. I, I think there is. I mean, I'm really starting to look for I've got some private real estate investment trusts that I really like that I'm waiting later in the year to add to because it's such a known issue. The office disaster is a known issue. And some of these really good real estate investment trusts are going to be able to use cash to buy these buildings on a major discount. Maybe they go in and renovate them and turn it into, you know, high-end retail at the bottom and high-end apartments at top. And eventually you'll have a migration back into the cities once they get fixed. Um, And most places like, you know, Houston and Dallas and places like that are doing great. It's the, it's the, you know, Portland and San Francisco and New York's that are having the big issues. It is a designation it is a designation that is earned through education and continuing education. It is a designation that I appreciate and I find to be the most useful in the world of financial wealth. Um, just throwing it down there for you. You can find CFP Chad Burton on podcast and you can listen last probably a four or five hours that he and I have done together. 
talking about financial planning for people in their 50s, moving to their 60s, 500,000 or more. We're going to be doing an event live Thursday evening, Palo Alto Elks Lodge. But uh, check out his website first and uh, sign up for the event at his website, chadburton.com. That's C-H-A-D-B-U-R-T-O-N.com. We've hit a lot of topics today, Chad. Let's do one more round of Ask the Financial Planner. Um, Alternative investments. Uh, What are alternative investments and do we need them? Uh, So alternative investments, you can't quite say they're 100% stocks or 100% bonds or you know, 100% liquid real estate, for example. Um, and so I think that we go through periods of time, and I remember this, you know, I don't know, about 15, 20 years ago, too, where you get these uh, news articles that say, oh, the 60-40 portfolio is dead. You know, typically going into retirement, you need your three years worth of portfolio draws and save money, and then the rest of your portfolio should be something like 60% equities, 40% bonds. But... I mean, here's the deal with with uh, Dodd-Frank, Sarbanes-Oxley, and all these different rules. The world of, of bonds has changed, and also the Federal Reserve being involved, right, with with liquidity. You know, trying to create liquidity and lower rates for the not only the Great Recession but then COVID. Um, even though the ten-year Treasury is returned to slightly above three and a half percent, it was um, above five prior to the Great Recession. And so people are needing to create more income. And there's also different things going on in in the credit markets in terms of lending. So in a simplest form, it's there's certain rules around a bank that has invested in a company and also does a deal in lending money to companies that are about to be, you know, acquired by one another or bought by another company. Um, so a big area of alternative investments is private credit. The other name for that is direct lending. And, uh, there's, these come in all sorts of shapes and forms, Rob. I mean, there's some that are kind of hidden, uh, venture capital funds where money is being lent to very aggressive startup companies, but there's others where you have this credit facility and, and they're lending money to profitable companies, buying other profitable companies. And usually when that happens, there is typically a five to seven year note. There's a base rate of return plus uh, SOFR rates. And so these things are yielding some cases, you know, north of 8%. Um, and sometimes they're paid off early. Now, you you want to look for the ones that are mostly senior secured notes. So if something happens to one of the companies, you're at the top of the food chain in terms of liquidation. Um, it, it, but they've been great because as interest rates went up, the income went up. And um, and you got to look at the in, underneath the hood. Who's lending money? Who's being lent money to? And who are they buying? And is the portfolio diversified? So there's a ton of them out there. Um, we like the ones that are more conservative. They're a decent place. And, and where do you add them? I mean, that's the first question. First of all, it's for portfolios north of $2 million that we're talking about. So um, you you want to make sure you know the rules of net worth because there's liquidity issues with these things, Rob. They, even though the returns can be great and the income can be great, typically once you go in, you're waiting at least five years to come out and there's different gates that can occur. So a lot of times when you go in, if you want to take money back out, the most you can get above your income is 5% a quarter. So it might take you some time to liquidate. So most uh, alternative investments 
they charge differently and they have different liquidity issues because the, the money, the companies that you're investing with need to know that the money's going to be around. Whereas a mutual fund or an ETF, they're liquid. You just push a button and sell it, right? So you're trading off, um, you know, typically higher income for liquidity issues. Uh, same thing on the real estate side. There's tons and tons of pr uh, publicly traded real estate investment trusts. And there's also some decent private ones, um, which, you know, still have valuations that are done, but they can create some higher income for people, but there's liquidity gates um, that, you know, they could say, you know what, over and above your income, we're not letting people sell shares right now because of what the, where the market is. So there's liquidity issues. Um, same thing with private equity, you know, that's another form. And, and I don't, I'm not talking about hedge funds. I think hedge funds in the 28, 29, almost 29 years that I've been doing this, I've never seen long-term outperformance by hedge funds especially the way they charge. But what has changed in the business is there's fewer and fewer companies going public now, Rob. Yeah. Um, so my favorite asset class, which is small cap, I, I kind of sit there and wonder like, you know, <laughs> how are we going to get more small cap companies out there? Cause they seem to either, you know, stay private or be purchased by a larger company before they ever go public. And that's where some private equity can come into play for higher net worth individuals. And, uh, it is interesting how the IPO market dried up so much. Um, but I am interested, you, you brought up something. You said it's your favorite asset class? Oh, yeah, especially small cap value. Is it because it's underperformed or? That's that's one reason. If you look at the last 10 years, it's been the longest period of large cap outperformance over and above small cap. Right. Um, so not only is it cheaper and it's its turn to shine, but when you look at uh, – the Callan table of periodic table of investments, and you look at a certain asset class that tends to always stay around the top, uh, small cap value is, is one that's really, really good over time. So you most people that I find they're, they're overweight and large cap and, and underweight and small cap and international right now. That sums me up. So you want to plug the seminar Thursday? Yeah. I mean, this is, if, if you're really looking for the, you know, retirement 300 level course, everything that you need to know. And we're not talking about selling products or garbage annuities and stuff like that. This is really detailed information on how taxes work, where you should pull money, how much safe money you should have, what your portfolio should look like. That's good. You can find Chad Burton at chadburton.com. Sign up for the event at chadburton.com. Got a couple hours Thursday evening, 630 to 830 Palo Alto Elks Lodge. You will learn about financial planning and income issues in retirement. Sign up at chadburton.com. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.